Hello and welcome to Coast and Country, powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Coming up in this special edition all about nanotechnology and plants, Dr. Christian Dimper talks about his work and findings so far in this emerging science field. Dr. Nubia Zuveza-Mena explains some of the techniques and technology she's using as part of her work in plant analysis. And Dr. Washington De Silva explains how his research in virology will look to utilize nanotechnology and nanoparticles to create a new generation of plant therapeutics. But first, what exactly is nanotechnology and how can it be used to help plants and on a wider scale our global food chain? I sat down with Dr. Jason White, the director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, to find out answers to these questions. So nanotechnology is basically the science of the small. Um, this was noticed in the 1950s or so initially that, that when you have materials at the nanoscale, which is a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Um, so when you have something like copper or iron at that size scale, it actually behaves differently. It has different properties. Uh, and uh, sometimes those properties can be useful and sometimes they can be dangerous. So nanotechnology is, is the field of science that really tries to take advantage of that different behavior, hopefully the beneficial ways. And how did the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station become interested in nanotechnology, in particular the food aspect of it? Uh, I suppose I'm, I'm to blame for that. Uh, I was a staff scientist uh, in about 2008 uh, and I was working on how emerging contaminants uh, interacted with plants uh, as kind of a food safety concern. Uh, and I took a phone call from a colleague at the University of New Haven, uh, and he had a master's student who was trying to assess the toxicity of nanoparticles uh, to bacteria. Uh, and the, they, had, they were in a physics department and they didn't know how to grow bacteria. Uh, so the student had six months left and no data. Uh, he was a master's student. So they asked if he could come over here and investigate the toxicity of nanoparticles to plants uh, because they knew I knew how to group, grow plants and expose them to contaminants. And at the time, I didn't know anything about nanoparticles except I was pretty sure they were small. Um, so I said yes. Uh, and the student came over. Uh, he worked for about three or four months uh, exposing um, plants to, to different kinds of nanoparticles, things like silver and copper and zinc. Uh, and what we noticed was that the toxicity of the nanoparticle to the plant was actually different than the non-nanoparticle form, than regular silver or regular copper. Uh, and that seemed interesting to me. And when we looked in the scientific literature, we noticed that that had not been published before with plants. Um, so that uh, was our first paper in that area, which was published in 2009, but it kind of triggered this, this whole interest that we had at the time in what's called nanotoxicology, the toxicology of nanomaterials. Uh, and that's kind of how that work started. I got a USDA grant a couple of years after that and started collaborating with, with uh, larger groups of, of people. Um, and so my interest for the first five or six years was all on the toxicity of these materials. You know, in my viewpoint, nanomaterials were the next emerging contaminants. They were the next PFAS. Uh, but what we noticed after about five or six years in this, in this area was not only were there instances where nanomaterials were not toxic to plants, but under certain scenarios, they were actually beneficial 
Um, you could you could figure out ways, um, at least we thought at the time, you could figure out ways to actually sustainably add these materials to increase plant growth or increase stress tolerance and things like that. Um, and that first paper we published in, in 2016. So now we have these two kind of research areas in our group. One looking at the implications of these materials, what happens if the, you know there's a toxic situation, but also trying to figure out ways we could sustainably add them for the benefit of food production. When you expose um, plants to high dose of nanomaterials, the plants will, um, will be affected in negative ways. There will be very obvious effects like uh, reduce yield, there will be effects on, on growth, so vegetative growth will be stunted. There will be subtle effects where we don't see those outcomes in terms of effects on the genes, on the proteins, but then with longer exposure, those effects begin to manifest outward, and we see that um, based on the shape and the size of the nanomaterials, they can bring about several types of effects that uh, we don't want if we expose plants to them at high dose. So moving to the application side, I have been looking at low dose effects so we apply, we expose plants to loaders of the, of the materials, and we see that there are actually very beneficial effects. I've seen in using several nanomaterials like phosphorus, like zinc, like copper, we see effects that are unprecedented, that are uh, way um, more, more, the outcome is more, more gra grand than using conventional nutrients. So I have seen effects on nanoparticles re reducing the time it takes for plants to mature. I've seen up to five days um, re reduction in maturity period. I've seen effects on drought, whereby I expose plants to zinc nanoparticles, and I see that plants can do well, even at um, half the rate of water you apply to, to a conventional plants. That those effects I don't see regularly with normal zinc fertilizers. So those are some of the uh, outcomes I've seen using nanomaterials to, to test plants in a positive way. And sometimes we outsource the materials and sometimes we synthesize them, synthesize them ourselves or with our collaborators and we need to see what are we making or what are we using. So we need to characterize them and see how they look like, what is their size, what is their shape, what is their composition. And the electron microscopy can help us to, to look at some of that. And the way it works is that it has a source of electrons that passes through a high vacuum column. This is the, the column. And you have your sample here. You put it in this, this is a sample holder that goes into the column. So the sample is very, very, very thin, as thin as, as so the electrons can go through. If I'm putting my hand in here, and then there's like a shade because the light is not, the light is not hitting there. So you can create an image of my hand down here. So it's the same thing. The electrons go through my sample and some of them lose energy and some of them can't really go through, but some of them can pass. So the electrons going through my sample create an image of, of, of what we have. For example, you can see here a picture of copper oxide nanoparticles that we synthesized using bacteria. And you can see that the size is very is very small. The size, the, the scale is five. These are five hundred nanometers. So the nanoparticles are, are much smaller than that. You can also see that they are all agglomerated. This is a different kind of material. These are Syrian nanoparticles, and you can see different from the from the other ones. These are much smaller, and they are less agglomerated. Their their shape is 
they have less round edges these are more sharp edges and it's it's a different material so we need to prepare the plant tissue and for that we need to dry it and then we do an extraction of the elements to have a, a solution of the plant extract that we can put inside the instrument to know what are the elements that are inside the plant and this is an inductively coupled plasma optical emission spectrometer and it's very interesting because it can read too many too many elements at the same time it can read up to i forgot 75 something elements at the same time so it can tell us what are the elements that are in our plant tissue if it's well depends on what what we are analyzing but say we want to know what went where like where what is in the roots what is in the stems what elements are in the fruit so we prepare our samples from the plants and then we come and read them in the instrument. So what happens is that when we have our when we have our samples here, a probe, the probe will come and suck some of the liquid. We'll bring it through here through the nebulizer so that the sample will be made into tiny tiny droplets that come into the spray chamber. So then the spray of the liquid will go in cl closely to the plasma where the sample will become, will uh, decompose into atoms. So that the, and then each atom for the elements that we have in there will emit certain wavelength and then the instrument will be able to tell what are the elements that we have in our samples. So that's how it tells what is the composition or what are the elements that we have in our samples. My research these days what I'm doing is I'm looking into antiviral therapeutics. So we are using this nanotechnology or this new technology where it is RNA based which is a biological uh, molecules and we apply those RNAs that we synthesize in the lab and that helps the, the plant to boost the immune system against virus. As now we don't have viricides to control viral infection. Once the plants get infected by a virus pretty much doomed and there is no way to control it. What we do is we use measures to avoid virus to get into the plants. And that's very difficult to accomplish. So in our research, what we are trying to accomplish is to provide something to the plant. So the plant is going to be primed for the viral infection. And then once the virus kicks in, once the virus comes in, the plant is going to just fight the virus infection and not get infected. And virus disease these days cause about $30 billion US dollars in lost in the economy and a lot of jobs have been lost too because of different virus disease and this will be so just a um, extra tool you know toolbox to fight the virus disease so far we have identified uh, a few molecules rna molecules that again we synthesize in the lab but those are natural molecules and we apply to the plant and that boosts the plant against the virus that's what we have found so far now we need a delivery system we need something that can be commercialized and be used by the growers. That's where nanotechnology comes to play. So we are testing and synthesize different nanoparticles to that end. So we are using nanoparticles as nanocarriers of RNA molecules to apply to plants so the plants can fight virus infection. So RNAs are natural biological molecules. You produce RNA, we have a bunch of RNA flowing around, so they are very uh, easily degraded. Once the 
you know, they get some enzymes and if we, to produce in your, in your body, and the plants also produce the enzymes, um, they are easily degraded. So that's one thing that's good because it's uh, biocompatible, um, right? But also it's, uh, it's not so good because it doesn't last too long. So with the nanotechnology, what you're trying to accomplish is to have a nanocarrier, not just to carry the molecule, but also to protect it. Because now we apply those molecules, the RNA molecules to the plants, it give five days of protections. So that's not enough. If you have a plant in the field for four months, six months sometimes, so we need something that's is going to prolong the effect of those uh, RNAs. And that's what we're trying to accomplish, have a nanocarrier to carry and deliver the RNA and also to protect it from degradation. We need to come up with a molecule with a carrier that's going to be uh, adaptable to different situations. Or maybe you have to create uh, different molecules, different nanoparticles for different climate, uh, climate situations, right? Because if you have a high temperature, you're using like, let's say, uh, silica-based nanoparticle. Maybe that's going to dissolve quicker than when you have a cold temperature. That's something you, ha you have to keep in mind when you try to design those compounds. Yeah, so climate change, different climates, that plays a big role in what we are doing, trying to accomplish here. This, again, this is a bio uh, molecule. It's not engineered in any way, uh, molecular engineering in any way. It's just a, a molecule that's present there. It is there, and even if you make it or not. So it's that has to be said, it's not a, a GMO, right? So that's one thing. And the other thing is when people talking about GMOs, sometimes they're more concerned about uh, the corporations own the GMO. Let's say you have a GMO seed and every year you need to buy the seeds from the corporation. So you become like, almost like a slave of the system, right? With this technology, again, it's not a GMO. And also it's not like something is gonna be mandatory. So. Let's say you grow potatoes, right? And you have a virus disease. So if you have the option to buy this, this product or not, right? It's not that necessarily you have to buy it in order to survive. So it is just, in other words, it's just like a, a extra tool for your toolbox and it helps you to be profitable in whatever uh, crop you cro you're growing. Potatoes are a very important crop and it is extremely susceptible, not just to viruses, but by many other pathogens like fungal or bacterial pathogens, right? And there is this virus I'm working with, it's called potato virus Y or PVY. It is the major uh, viral pathogen of potatoes. It causes lots, lots of loss, right? And that's why you're try trying to tackle it. And the problem with virus is, uh, is that usually um, you don't know you have it until you have it. It's not like a bacteria or a, f a fungal pathogen that we see the structures. Viruses don't see it. The only time you see it sometimes most of the time it's just too late. So that's why it's so intriguing to me. And that's why you're trying to come up with this type of a vaccine for plants. This, this is not a new problem. It's been known since, you know, for 10 or 15 years uh, that we were gonna have to dramatically increase food production by the year 2050, for example, um, to feed the nine billion plus people that are gonna be on the planet. Um, estimates from the um, USDA and other international organizations go anywhere from 70 to 100 percent we're going to have to increase food production. Uh, but we published a paper in 2019 in Nature Nanotechnology where we actually showed that the uh, the year-over-year -year productivity of most crops was actually decreasing. Um, so um, we were still getting increased growth but the 
the size of our increases year over year is decreasing. So we're, we're actually becoming less efficient at producing food. Um, so that's one part of the problem. We're moving in the wrong direction. Um, it's just becoming more difficult to produce food. But then you factor in climate change. Uh, a changing climate is going to dramatically increase the difficulty uh, of growing food. Just look at what's happening in California with the drought uh, or in, in New England with increased presence of uh, pathogens that we've never really seen before uh, or pathogens that have been here but are just more severe and are restricting growth. Uh, and then you have, you know, human human-made factors uh, such as what's happening in Ukraine and Russia where um, you know globally a significant fraction of, of wheat is, is uh, historically come out of those areas and it's not coming anymore. Uh, so uh, maintaining global food security is, is going to be among the most significant challenges we face as a species in the next 30 to 40 years and it's, it's getting um, progressively worse uh, more quickly than we thought it was going to. And can the work done here at the New Haven Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, you know, impact food production around the world? Uh, we think it can. Um, you know, as as noted, um, you know, we we're really looking at a, a range of uh, places along the food production chain, starting with things like seed treatment. Uh, seed treatments and going right through, um, you know, foliar applications to seedlings or field trials. Uh, but we've also got collaborations with groups at Rutgers. Uh, I was just on a, a call this morning with a group at Singapore where we're looking at things like food packaging to preserve um, shelf life uh, because food waste is a huge, huge issue. 20 to 30 percent of the food that's actually produced globally is, is wasted before it's consumed. So the way we see this is that nanotechnology is uh, an approach that we can sustainably apply at very specific places along that kind of food production and distribution chain. Um, for us, the most important part of this is it has to be sustainable though. My training is in environmental toxicology. Um, so whenever I think of a strategy by which we think we could increase food production, you know, that voice in the back of my head is always saying, if we can't do this safely and sustainably, we shouldn't be doing it. Um, but we've, um, we're writing up a paper right now where we did a field trial on nanoscale sulfur, for example. Uh, sulfur is an interesting element because 30 years ago, nobody, no growers, no farmers worried about adding sulfur to soil because of the burning of dirty fossil fuels. There was enough sulfur coming down in, in rain that you didn't need to add it to soil. Well, Go Clean Air Act, you know, about five or ten years ago, growers started realizing there was sulfur deficiency in the soil, so you have to add sulfur as a, as a nutrient. Um, but it's problematic because you add sulfur, you can decrease soil pH. So we ran this field experiment with nanoscale sulfur where we demonstrated that, um, and this is a nutrient that the plants need, but by supplying it in nanoscale form, Per acre of tomato, we spent about $19, uh, and we increased the yield um, by uh, several hundred kilograms uh, and several thousand dollars per acre just by supplying this needed nutrient in a, in a new, new way. Um, so um, some, of our, some of the approaches that we're working on, and it's not just us, we have collaborators around the country and around the world, um, they're, they're approaches that are both safe and sustainable, but they're highly effective uh, at increasing food production. Uh, and I think there's a tremendous uh, future for this area of research. Um, you know, the, the number of groups globally that are working in this area is, is 10 times where it was three years ago. I mean, there's tremendous interest and it's only going to grow because the problem is not going away and it's going to get bigger.
The future of nanotechnology in plants is still a young science, but everyday scientists like those at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and around the world are learning more and unlocking more ways to use this science. As we continue to find out more about materials and their properties at the nanoscale, in the not-too-distant future, we'll be able to use this knowledge for better food crop protection, as well as precision farming, and even promote plant stress tolerance and enhancement of the soil we use to grow our food. That's all from this edition of Coasting Country. Thank you for watching. We'll see you again soon.